0: Good afternoon everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, May 10th episode of Poets and Muses, where I chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Twitter and Instagram under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right hand side of our SoundCloud page. Now, aside from PoetsAndMuses.com and our SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, as well as TuneIn. With us today is Lana with whom I will be discussing her poem, The Skin You Asked For, and my poem, In Our Vision. Before we do that, however... I am going to go over some of the virtual poetry events taking place during the week of May 11th. On Monday, May 11th from 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Weijinan TV will be hosting the first of a 20-episode series of the Weijinan Wind Carriers Challenge. Anyone can participate, but only Indigenous youths between 8 and 25 years old are eligible for the prices, which includes the grand prize of a MacBook Pro. This will take place via several online platforms, and you can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash six four four five four seven three zero nine four five eight six eight zero. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash six four four five four. On Tuesday, May 12th, from 3 to 5 Eastern Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic for those between 13 and 23 years old. This is a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. This will take place via Zoom, and you can register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Tiny cover will be hosting their virtual poetry event via Zoom, And you can find out more information at thetinycover.com forward slash events. From 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting their weekly poetry writing workshop via Zoom. And you can find out that information by going to meetup.com and searching for Chandler Prose and Poetry Meetup. Again, that's meetup.com. Search for Chandler Prose and Poetry Meetup. On Wednesday, May 13th, from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Weijinand TV will be hosting the Weijinand Showcases for Indigenous youths between 13 and 25. This will take place on Instagram Live. You can RSVP at N W E J I N A N T V. Again, that's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. From 7.30 Central Standard Time, Luya Poetry will be hosting its house party featuring our past poet guest Aaron Kahn. This will take place on their website at luyapoetry.com. That's L-U-Y-A poetry.com. Again, l-u-y-a-poetry.com on thursday may 14th from 9 to 11 eastern time spit that dc will be hosting its weekly open mic via instagram live at spit that dc that's s-p-i-t-d-a-t-d-c again that's s-p-i-t-d-a-t-d-c From 7 to 8 p.m., Phonetic Spit will be hosting its weekly open mic via Instagram Live at phonetic spit. That's P-H-O-N-E-T-I-C-S-P-I-T. Again, it's P-H-O-N-E-T-I-C-S-P-I-T. On Friday, May 15th from 7 to 9 Eastern, White Whale Bookstore will be hosting their Pittsburgh Poetry Exchange reading featuring Judith R. Robinson, Nick Romero, Alyssa Sinini, and Hiram LaRue. You can find out more information about that at white whale Bookstore.com forward slash events. Again, that's white whale Bookstore.com forward slash events. On Saturday, May 16th, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., British summertime, Sabotage Reviews will be hosting its poetry as exploration of the past panel discussion featuring Kate Garrett, Julian Vandermolen, and Annabelle Mahoney. This will take place via Zoom, and you can find out more and register at sabotagereviews.com. Again, that's sabotagereviews.com. From 7 p.m., Eastern Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their fourth annual National Youth Poet Laureate Commencement performance with special performances by Amanda Gorman and Kara Jackson via Facebook, and you can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash urban word. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash urban word. On Sunday, May 17th, from 5.30 to 6.30, Broche Ballet will be hosting its multimedia concert, which is open to poetry and art submissions. You can find out more information at brocheballetonline.com forward slash adult-ballet-festival. Broche is B-R-O-C-H-E. Again, that's B-R-O-C-H-E. And now let us welcome to our Poet Guest of the Week, Lena Jita. Hi, Lena Jita. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our chat. You brought with you the poem, The Skin You Asked For. Um, and it says in your poem's notes that it was after Larry Levitt's the Poem You Asked For. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think the concept of the poem really, really stuck with me because it really personified um, how maybe a poem would sound Mm -hmm. and how maybe a poem would think. Like, it starts out by saying the poem would eat nothing. Um, I tried giving it water, but it said no. It's kind of more of a meditation on the creative process, in a sense, at the same time, when I read the poem for the first time, I also felt like it was a meditation on just a person's relationship with really anything. Right. And so I think that universality, but like very, very specific imagery, kind of called out to me, mm-hmm. which is why I, instead of you know speaking about a poem. I wanted to speak about skin and how skin is personified and how skin kind of is its own entity, especially in today's world. It kind of made me think about something as just so effortless as a poem or so effortless as our skin, you know, something that we cannot change, something that we're born with, something that yet still perseveres and changes throughout time in our lifetimes. I thought it was pretty fascinating to kind of explore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I love the the way you did this and how you're basically talking to like a bosom friend in in some ways and and trying to understand from a more self-removed, more objective way. Before we have you read that for us, can you tell us a little bit about
1: yourself? Yeah, I recently just graduated. From college, uh, I studied English and art history, mm-hmm. and I graduated a little bit early. And I decided to embark on a cross-country poetry album and poetry book tour. Mm-hmm. This all kind of started out when I became the first Nashville Youth Poet Laureate back in 2015, 2016. And I was still in high school and I was writing. I've been connected to writing and the arts for a long time but I was more so a songwriter than anything Mm -hmm. and I remember I was in India one summer because we go back to Kolkata, which is where I was born Mm -hmm. Uh, we go back every two years or so to visit family everyone I know is there but my parents and I remember I couldn't write a song so I wrote three different poems Mm -hmm. during that time and when I got back the applications for Peace Poet Laureate opened up and my mom forced me to enter (laughs) I was so upset because I was like I'm not a poet I just write songs these were just for fun and they asked for three poems and I only had three poems and I became a finalist and had to read one in front of 600 people and then I won so kind of since then just like my obsessive nature really slowly transitioned from like the music side of things to more of just a you know pretty strict poetry side of things so you know I I never was formally trained I call myself an untrained poet I just had a mentor and the program gave me a, a book deal and I was able to do all kinds of like civic and artistic activities, but more so what the program, you know, aims to achieve is connecting the civic nature of identity to the poetic nature of identity. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of like readings that I read for the Merrill inauguration, kind of things like that, that kind of promoted youth voice and promoted the art of poetry more so. Right. Was that in Tennessee? Yeah, that was in Nashville. Uh, yeah, so we moved from India t- straight to Nashville when I was six years old, mm. and I'd kind of been there ever since, all through college. Mm. But yeah, so I think that really opened the door to performance poetry for me specifically. I don't really consider myself a spoken word poet. I find it a little limiting, but it really opened the doors for you know for my emphasis on how, like, words and how poems should sound when said aloud instead of just read off the page, which kind of hearkened my my roots in music more so. And so I went from there to uh, become the Southeast Regional Youth Poet Laureate and a finalist for the National Youth Poet Laureate, and since then have just been doing events, doing readings, and kind of decided once I released my poetry album I don't know anyone here. That was my honors thesis, actually. Once I released that, I had kind of just decided to take a little break before going to grad school and just travel America and kind of, you know, share my work and meet other people and collaborate with other people like like you. Um,
0: Cool. Yeah, it sounds like a great deal. Are you already in a graduate program? As in, did you get accepted already? Or are you thinking of applying?
1: No, I'm still thinking of applying. I currently just got my TEFL certificate, which is teaching English as a foreign language, because I want to teach English um, in South America for a little bit before I go to grad school. Yeah, that's their eventual goal. I want to be a professor of poetry. Like, I have my life planned out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounded like you had your life planned out before as well, and... and... (laughs) You know, poetry is certainly related, but it kind of threw you huh?
1: exactly I, I say I always say poetry kind of chose me mm. more than I chose poetry, and it kind of threw me into this whirlwind of like the creative side, but also very much the you know academic side while I was in college because this is when I was kind of doing the bulk of you know my writing and my and my readings. So I, I just felt so connected to the the intersection between like I don't feel like I'm very selfish or narcissistic enough to think that like my poetry is all you know I can offer mm. <laughs> to the world and that's you know like if somebody reads a poem that's my con- my great grand contribution and mm. I'm changing the world like I was never of that mentality and I so I once I got to kind of academia I was like like the perfect way to you know, share, but also, like, give back. Right. I taught some workshops at the library, and I was TA for one of my professors. So I've done a lot of, you know, teaching here and there, but I've always felt, like, less very attached to the pedagogy and more just attached to what something like a poem can offer someone else if they give it the chance.
0: Right, right, that makes sense. I mean, it certainly opened up a world to you, um, that otherwise may not have been open. I, I see that a lot for, for a lot of the other poets that I talk with. The former Navajo Lo- Poet Laureate, for instance, Laura Toghi, until she went to college, she didn't even think about writing poetry, and then she became the
1: <laughs> Navajo
0: Poet Laureate at some point. Okay. You never know where it's going to lead Or these accidents. How old were you when you wrote those three poems
1: when you went back to India? Yeah, I was around 14 or 15. Wow. I know I'd written my first song around like the age of 10. Mm-hmm. You know when you're that young and you just think you're so old you know. <laughs> I was like 14 thinking I was like so old um, and I, I remember so I wrote pretty much all of the poems that ended up being my first book. I had to write pretty much like all of the 50 poems within a little bit less than a year. And I remember I wrote all of those when I was like 15, 16. So I kind of look at my first book and I'm like, oh, you know, like she was really like learning how to write at that time.
0: Right, right. It's good that you had a mentor to help, I guess, shape those.
1: Yeah, I, I would sit down with this wonderful man, Bill Brown. Just a wonderful poet, but just, just the greatest friend. And we would you know, go to a coffee shop every week and kind of discuss poetry and discuss other people's poems. And he'd give me poems to read and kind of imitate. And like from then on, I just would offshoot into like, you know, whatever distracted ramblings that I had at the time. But it was really lovely to like come back to that one meeting spot and be spoken to in a way that as a 15 year old girl talking to this very elderly wonderful just like brilliant man you know Mm -hmm. it did not ever feel like that at all and that is kind of probably another reason well you know that I felt so connected to the teaching of poetry because it's not just like textbook it's not just here, like this is this is what meter is. This is a rhyme. You know, it's it's a human shared experience. Right, right. And um,
0: I also hear that a lot when when I talk with poets. Some come from the a- academia and learn in that formal way. Many others, especially the poets I interview, tend to have come across it. Um, you know, on their own. You know, reading poets uh, and poems who that that just. Really inspire them to try their own hands at this particular art. In terms of your mom forcing you to enter the uh, poems, yeah, um, I guess you you have a pretty good relationship with her. Uh, if she knew about your poetry writing,
1: right? I am an only child. Me and my family lived in you know a one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartment until I was a freshman in high school, and I didn't really, I never felt like very connected to anyone in school or in the in the apartment complex or you know anything like that, I kind of um, always say I was kind of forced into growing up um, alone and I know how to be alone and I spent all of that time pretty much investing myself into you know these artistic and solitary tasks like writing or reading or you know, drawing or singing. Um, And when you grow up in a such a tight knit three person home mm-hmm. in across the world from your actual home, you just kind of have this understanding of each other that kind of honestly freaks me out a little bit sometimes. Like, if I'm having kind of a rough day, like on this tour, you know, my mom will call me incessantly being like, You know, is there something wrong? Something feels wrong. And it it freaks me out still to this day, like how, you know, I don't necessarily share everything with her, but it seems to know.
0: Right. There's a, there's an unstated connection.
1: Yeah. And I pretty much owe her, like, owe everything to that very faithful, faithful decision of her forcing me into this. Though my father, my father's a writer, he's Was a a big time journalist in in Kolkata where we lived. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet, like, that was obviously they both nurtured me from when I was very young to kind of, you know, follow my passions and kind of do these things because they always told me, like, these are the things, you know, that will never make you feel alone and these are the things that will never go away. So I carry that, you know, obviously with me everywhere I go and I know that. You know it really was like this very fateful thing that kind of set this course for my life that i didn't you know i wanted to be a singer or something crazy so <laughs> well
0: hey not at all i think there's still a lot of music in your poetry and i don't just mean the cadence but although the piece that we're going to read is it's not about music you do mention it in the very first line but also your other poems are written as if either they're songs, lyrics, or are meant to be accompanied by music, as
1: you explained.
0: Why don't we have you read this, uh, The Skin You Asked For, and then we can talk more about it in depth.
1: The Skin You Asked For. My skin sang Bollywood songs in its sleep. I tried to get it to shut its mouth, but it would not stop talking about itself, making itself seen and heard a burden, a disclaimer. Everyone wanted the skin like a cloak to put on when cold and leave at the door. The skin never said no. It smelled like curry powder perfume and always shivered. I gave it a hood, but it became a threat. I gave it a smile, but it could not look me in the eye. The skin stayed inside the skin like the dark it was afraid of the light sometimes. I wished I could abandon the skin on your front porch, let you possess it, feed your fetish, you liked your finger stained because you could wash your hands after. But most times, I wanted the skin to feel at home. I wanted it to listen to me again. I did not want it to desert me or become an other. But my skin walked away, told me it would rather sleep in your bed, that you liked it for itself, that you wanted no other color, that you made it feel important again, said, it belonged with you more than it ever did with me. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It's a really interesting (laughs) progression that, you know, this uh, anthropophilizing of your skin.
1: Uh, Can you tell us what inspired to write it? I think it kind of has its roots, and the kind of self-growth and, you know, coming into oneself and, that people encounter in college. I loved Nashville ever since I got to Nashville. I stayed in Nashville because I wanted to build off of the poetry community, and I definitely remember um, my parents would always tell me that, uh, you know, that this discrimination, this unsaid discrimination... Existed for them, and that it definitely, definitely exists for me. And I kind of would gloss over it and say, like, no, like, you know, she didn't invite me because of this, or he didn't want to go out with me because of this. But you know, I, I had people tell me it was boys would say it was because like they were scared of my parents, or you know, people would say they, you know, that their parents didn't want me to come over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of didn't have that. Inception, or maybe I just tried to explain it away because you know it's not a very pretty reality and then I, I went to college and I was away from my parents you know from being under my parents roof and I was experiencing things on my own and yet like the experiences that I was having did not change when in the past I would blame my parents and say oh it's because you didn't, you know, let me go to their house or, like, you never let me sleep over anywhere. Like, the, the classic brown struggle, you know, they only will let you sleep over with, their brown, with your brown friends because um, they they trust, you know, that you won't get hurt yeah. uh, there. And, you know, obviously when you're young, like, I remember junior, senior year of high school, I was really sick of it. And, you know, I, I just kind of blamed, like, all my friends leaving me, All my friends hurting me, like on the fact that I just couldn't hang out with them and so they didn't like me. But I got to college and the exact, you know, I would literally hang out with them all the time, but I had multiple friends just, you know, betray me in the same way, like uh, over the years throughout college. Like I would always still get picked second or last, or I would still feel like not anybody's first choice, definitely but also just these very small instances of, like, real discrimination that I did not obviously (laughs) intercept as discrimination at the time, though, you know, my mom, you know, she would know from the beginning, like, she'd be like, oh, she's this girl's from, you know, Kentucky, or, or, oh, I knew it, you know, like, Mm -hmm. when I met her the first time, or this or that, you know, and I would just kind of wave it off, because I just had this, like, hope. For people and you know I thought maybe just my identity would be something not ignored but definitely not discriminated against you know right. but slowly throughout college there was there was no, nothing I could blame on my parents that in these experiences that I was I was feeling so aware of my skin for the first time I was always aware of my skin it's not like I'd never been discriminated against in the past. It's just maybe in the past, I just did not link the two together. Mm -hmm. When I got to college, I just, there was, you know, obviously I'd like spend so much time explaining away the fact that it's might be discrimination. I'd give people so many chances, you know, like in my head, obviously kind of explaining away that, you know, that this could be the reason why they're acting this way. But After a certain point in time and after a certain amount of chances, you know, you feel truly like left out or ignored or invisible in spaces long enough, you know, that your skin, because of that invisibility you face, becomes hyper visible to you. And I went to a very, very predominantly white Christian liberal arts school that also a music school when I first got there, obviously like the music part of it made everyone seem like they were so accepting and open and, you know, tolerant and like, it just was not the case and it was just not the case in the community. And I didn't see that at the time, but when I look at the Nashville music community or the Nashville DIY community now, it's, I know maybe one other Indian woman. Mm. I don't know any other Indian people in the whole community. And, you go to the shows, you go to the readings, and it's always the same. Mm. And so this poem was the first time I kind of really addressed this personal reckoning with this struggle because, you know, during my first book, I, I really was learning the craft of poetry. I was just trying to learn how to write poetry. I was honestly afraid of being personal mm. or being vulnerable in my work. Right. And I remember that this, because it was such a perfect analogy, because, you know, the poem you asked for, it gave me such a perfect format to explore something at a distance, but still interrogate such like vulnerability and so many years of, uh, of this kind of, you know, experience that I was having that I didn't ever consider or, you know, name, mm-hmm. uh, so this was kind of the perfect way to, to be like, Oh, the, the, you know, I'm talking to this, to this guy who, you know, obviously says that he likes me, you know, but whenever you're the only Brown person in a community, you always think they like you because they want to fetishize you mm. or they only like you. Cause they're like, Ooh, like she's Indian. Like that's exotic, you know? Right. And I've gotten that before. So, that, that interrogation just felt very natural because for the first time, like all through high school, all through my entire education before college, boys, they'd flirt with me all they wanted, but they they never do anything about it. And I was always confused until I realized when I got to college and they were like all about it. Mm. And I was, it is just the disconnect um, from me and my roots. Or me and my culture, me and my parents, like all those things finally in college allowed me to be looked upon as something trivial, as something novel for them.
0: Right, right. Thank you very much for sharing that. I, I have to tell you, I, I personally, I'm, I feel very lucky because I, um, I, I moved with my parents to New York. While it's not like uh, an oasis of... Uh, you know, equality in terms of racial, ethnic, you know, uh, things. But it it is uh, maybe just because of the neighborhood I grew up in was very multiracial and multiethnic. So I feel very lucky in terms of not having gone through some of these experiences that you unfortunately had to deal with. And I can only imagine how incredibly difficult it must have been to want to be friends and you know to have this natural human tendency of being social and wanting to make friends and in some ways not wanting to admit to ourselves that the prejudice is real and that people are actually rejecting us for something as simple as our skin color exactly. as, you know like something that makes real really no sense but like as you said in the beginning, it's our skin is something that we can't change. We can't take off as we would, as in your poem.
1: Right. So
0: yeah. people, and
1: it's it's very easy for someone without that skin to, you know, like the line in my poem to just just try it on. You know, whenever they want it. You know, whenever they want to do some yoga. Whenever they want to. You know, do henna, which is not even what it's called. Um, right. You know, they can explore my skin without the baggage of my skin, without the weight of it. You know, without carrying it around all the time, they can just take it off when they're tired of it. Right, right. And that's kind of more so what inspired me to to write the poem because people always claim, you know to be well-meaning or an ally, which I hate that word. Um, don't tell me that you're an ally. Just, you know, treat me like a normal person, mm-hmm. right. you know? That kind of mentality of, like, oh, no, like, I'm not problematic at all. Like, I'm I'm just trying to help, you know? Right. And not really listening, like, not really opening yourself up to the possibility that Maybe you might not be a bad person, but you can make a mistake, which anyone can, you know, Uh, make any form of mistakes. And I think that's what I struggled with the most in particularly my community rather than like it was never just, you know, the blatant racism or the blatant discrimination is easy to spot and easy to avoid. You know, you see it and you can say, no, I won't let that bother me because, that's them, and I have my own thing, and I don't need that to interfere, but when you constantly, consistently, you know, have these experiences where people that you thought were your friends that claim to understand, like, some form of the struggle, you know, whatever it is, or Mm -hmm. some form of discrimination, the majority of it, you know, has come from white women in my life, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, they you know they want to offer this kind of identity politics of like no girl i got you like i've been there i'm an ally i'm on your side and you know without really doing the heavy lifting of trying to understand and trying to listen which you know we have to do that every second of our life in america every second we have to think of our identity when we enter a public space when we enter a private space you know we are so hyper aware Mm. of our otherness or our difference and and we have to cater towards and assimilate to whatever environment we kind of inhabit at the time and yet the opposite never kind of sees itself through you know like so i always say like this this whole the whole concept of anti racism it's like you can't like everyone feels a little bit of otherness like that's human nature it's human reality but yeah. if you don't want to put in in the the time and the work to so always always understand that there are people that are different from you and there are people that have to deal with this constantly and instead of you ignoring it or you saying no i It's a problem, but I'm not like that. Or you know, if you don't do the heavy lifting, you know, it can it can become so consuming for us, you know, Mm because it's we either just don't talk about it at all, or you know, we talk about it and then kind of get persecuted for talking about it, you know, (laughs) and and they're like, oh, what are you calling me racist? Like, and (laughs) everyone's like, oh, like all up in arms about like pointing out. (laughs) one detail that could have made me feel hurt you know i never said that you were a racist
0: right right it's very difficult right for people to step back from something that they might have done because there's this um almost like hyper awareness without being actually aware exactly i appreciate people trying At the same time, is like, have you looked at who surrounds you, who you, you know, who you have surrounding you, who you choose as friends predominantly? Have you thought about how that contributes to your worldview? Exactly. And how convenient it is for you to use skin color or ethnicity as a cudgel when the. Power dynamics cause you to do that, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it's I've had some of those experiences since moving away from well, I, like even in New York, but less so, definitely less so in New York City. Um, yeah. But it still exists, and but yeah, hear, hearing your experience, it's, it's just painful because not only just being a minority, but being the lone minority in some yeah. ways as well. I did find that you're, as I said in the beginning, that there is a transition from your poem. It felt like you found someone, someone that you could trust, that right. you could feel comfortable with. I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about that.
1: I feel, okay, so this, it's been a, it's, you know, when you when you're growing up, it's the whole, you like start trusting everyone and then you're like, I trust no one, <laughs> you know, yeah. no one is safe. Like everyone is, you know, you don't, you don't look at people, at least I don't, I know, you know, this is a very valid and legitimate like way to cope with these realities, but I've never been one to just look at someone and write them off, you know, right and I've never been one to just look at someone and be like, she's gonna, you know discriminate against me or, yeah. or you know this that or the other thing I've I've always just kind of inherently had this human hope mm-hmm. that I, I kind of invest in myself and also obviously other people but to an extent you know when you've been caught in this cyclical process of, of relationships are obviously a great metaphor for this because you know that is the nature of you being what's one other person like it will be you know cyclical like that it will be like this didn't work out with this person but it worked out with someone else and then maybe it didn't work out with them either friendships are a little different in that way because you know it's supposed to not be cyclical right Right. yet you know in my experience they're all kind of one and the same simply due to my identity like simply due to almost no fault of my own you know right like, I'm not treating any one person differently from any, you know, other person right off the bat. I am just hopeful and kind of excited that someone, you know, maybe likes me yeah, <laughs> or cares yeah. about me, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so in that regard, I feel, you know, very, once I left Nashville, it felt like, some, like another breakup of sorts mm. and another breakup of like, both the city, but also, honestly, the country of America, you know, I, I love to travel, and I, and I've been to so many places, so, you know, inherently, like, like, a belonging, maybe similar to what you've experienced in New York, you just kind of feel different sometimes, in different places, and I felt that, and that really turned me off to whatever, like, Nashville, and problems and hypocrisies of American culture kind of you know offered to me especially at the end of college and so I don't know when I when I released my album in Nashville the press release was that I said goodbye to Nashville you know Mm -hmm. and it really felt like that kind of a goodbye and and obviously in a sense like you know I've done a few readings elsewhere and it's you know, maybe not a whole, like, drastically very different, but Mm -hmm. I am coming into these places with already the knowledge that, you know, maybe America is not the place for me, versus I was truly so involved and loving of my city of Nashville, and, you know, as I grew older, I just felt like, you know, Nashville didn't love me back, or America didn't love me back, which at the same time, you know, goes in, into my palm as well. It's like, if this other person, like this this city, you know, treats my skin well, claims that it's treating me well, you know, but then in my own interrogation with my skin, my skin is leaving me to be with, you know, this well-meaning city or well-meaning person. It's really a betrayal, you know, and it really doesn't feel all that great to be told that uh or to, to experience having to choose between the two, which you know, after this whole experience I seemingly kind of developed that understanding and awareness that once you reach a certain age as an immigrant or as a minority, especially in in, in Indian culture, which is like On the opposite pole of American culture, there comes a point where you have to choose. And, you know, I see it all around me in my Bengali community. I'm Bengali. um, Where either someone growing up, they kind of value their American culture Mm -hmm. and you never see them at the community events. You just lose track of them or they choose and they choose to celebrate and finally not be ashamed and finally accept and understand that these are our people
0: right right.
1: and and these these people you know they're not perfect of course Mm. but at the end of the day you don't have to explain every single thing to them you don't have to explain why you kept your shoes off at the door you don't have to explain (laughs) what doll is you know like you, they just know. They just know. And even if they've had a different experience, that's the beauty of it. Because that's compassion, you know? That's empathy. Like, they know. And it is very, very difficult to find that in the outside world of just like, this very political, highly politicized, like, kind of space of, no, I'm woke or or no, like, I understand, I, I see what you're saying, when, no, until you've seen really this happening, you kind of don't know, and you kind of don't understand. And I'm grateful to kind of be with someone now that, like, he saw me kind of go through this firsthand. And, of course, like, at the beginning, you know, he kind of denied it a little bit, or he, he kind of may have may have acted like... It was something else when it wasn't, when it was about my skin, you know, when I wasn't overreacting, but having seen the effects of what had happened after that, there's very few people in your life that see those most vulnerable parts of you, you know, and there's very few people in your life that are not trying to just put on your skin like a cloak.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, You're at least the second poet who's told me about this level of comfort to be with one's own. The exhaustion that comes with having to repeat over and over and over, uh, explain over and over and over, why this, why that, and, and still, you know, not get a sense of understanding, almost an intuitive understanding. Yeah. And especially given what um, what mm-hmm. is happening now, what's been happening over the past few years, sometimes you just, you don't want to have to fight the outside world and then come home and fight again.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's really understandable. At the same time, because I live in a similar situation as you do in terms of being in between worlds, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, we don't belong to either. Right. So sometimes it's it's hard because neither world truly fits
1: who we are. But the duality is of an immigrant in, in America especially. It's just, it's kind of, it's liberating if you want to look at it in a positive light, you know. If you want to, you know, look at it more realistically, of course, it makes you feel suffocated sometimes. But... I want to feel myself be be liberated from those kind of binaries and and that dichotomy of, of like other and the same or you know man woman like white brown whatever whatever the dichotomy is you you know when you're inhabiting these two things you yourself feel like liberated from either of those two things and. You become the person, the manifestation of the person that you want others to be, like simply because you've been struggling (laughs) with the exact problem. Yeah. I mean, what what we can't find outside, we have
0: to build within ourselves. Right.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: But it's also difficult because sometimes, you know, you feel like you're taking on another person's life in some ways because how can we be ourselves if we are
1: struggling to become what we need exactly yeah no you're totally right it feels like you're taking off your clothes it feels like you're taking your pants off you know after a long day uh when you come into your community yeah i can see how how limiting and how scary that can become because i went to belmont for the precise reason, to not be boxed in to one particular expectation of me, or one small group or idea, or, you know, I, I purposely wanted to open myself up to this struggle, and it can be problematic sometimes when you get those feelings of, like, oh, like, finally I can breathe again, like, you know, I can talk in my own language, or I can... Talk about, like, you know, even the smallest things, like a, like a song or something, it's like, or a movie you've seen, like, you can just talk about it without any guilty feeling of, am I, you know, confusing someone? Am I putting the burden of my culture on someone that doesn't understand, doesn't even want to understand my culture? Right. right.
0: Yeah, yeah, it can be very difficult, especially if you feel in this day and age where you feel like you could be endangered by just being you. Um, right. So it's it's sort of often the same theme that I picked my poem to read with yours, but of course it picks up more on the end of your poem
1: right? Yeah.
0: and some of that, those dynamics in a more relationship sense. Um, exactly. Yeah is called in our vision so i'm going to read that now and we can talk about it afterwards he likes me for what i'm not he likes me for what he sees feels like i'm robbing till tuesday he wants to place me in the void his idolatry built he queries but doesn't listen while silence bridges over dead bodies and missing questions the persistence of age-old dichotomies we see what we want to it's comfortable, let's not change it. As differences stack up to mountains for letdowns, down's free fall. The body so small in contrast to the cerulean backdrop to the air's gentle support that I swear I will forget to pull the court. When seconds seem like minutes and I think I'm gliding like a free bird, though ground approaches as a wind up face slap. That's it, except there's no splatter to be scraped up, just the adrenaline high, causing a slight handshake, a hard tremor. Worth getting back up on the roller coaster. Hell
1: oh, yeah. Thank you for reading that.
0: It's similar to yours when you were talking about, although. You were talking about, in essence, the relationship with Nashville and saying goodbye to it, but also talking about relationship in terms of, uh, you know, an intimate relationship. And this is also something about, well, it's not really an intimate relationship so so much as one of the interactions where I was realizing that this person might be coming on to me and not because of me, more because of what he wanted to see right yeah so and so the fetishization that you were talking about exactly um, then i kind of thought about because the relationship is, is in such a dynamic where it's not like something that i could go and say to him oh hey um you know are you trying to because it's always a hard question to ask right exactly so um, there is a point where I'm turning it inside myself and asking myself how much of it is also my interpretation of what, I'm not dismissing what I felt. At the same time, I'm also saying from my part because I can't have this frank conversation with him. Um, the Misinformation, is all, it's like a, a two-way street in some sense. And then to examine it from my end as well. Exactly.
1: yeah yeah i mean you know when we speak of that kind of hypervisibility, visibility you know like i was like i was saying before it's like you know it's not always conducive to feeling you know it's not always conducive to feeling healthy and i i sense that kind of in the poem of, of of a self doubt kind of of a self-questioning and you know in a sense, that's really what everyone should do. That's probably what he should be doing too. But, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, your line with the, the age old dichotomy. Like I, I understood that for sure, be, being a woman, being, you know, a woman of color. Um, but I was kind of wanting to know, you know, maybe what you were thinking of specifically when you were writing this.
0: I literally just had this experience where somebody was, it seemed like he was hinting, kind of asking me out, sort of saying, he was talking about, none of us like to be rejected, you know, and and we try to do everything possible to sort of avoid a direct rejection. So there was a lot of dropping of hints. People would say things to me like, oh, you know, I like, I, I like... You know, certain Asian foods or whatnot, or certain, you know, I have a kinship towards certain Asian religion and whatnot. And, you know, most of the time, most of the time, you are trying so hard not to let your (laughs) eyes basically roll up into your head when you hear
1: things like that. (laughs) Yeah. If someone says namaste to me one more time, like it's like the yoga t shirts, like namaste in bed, you know, (laughs) like, stop. I mean, it's one thing to really, you know, expect someone to be honest about, you know, maybe a kinship or a connection. Right. Um, but it's it's such a curse to always be thinking that, you know, maybe part of this is just fetishization, or maybe some of this is just romantic, you know, or romanticized, or you know, <laughs> desirable. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, like I said during, like in the beginning, right? Like he queries, but he doesn't listen. And right. there are questions that he should be asking that he's not asking, maybe because he doesn't really want to know. Right. It, it, and it's hard because, like you said before, we are kind of <laughs> exhausted because we have to do the thinking for them in some ways. We have to be doing the guessing. We have to be like, what the, what, what? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah so it's it and you know and you keep have to be uh, you know and at this point i'm basically like no i'm if i have to question it i'm not going to do it i need somebody to make me feel like they like me for me and not they don't like me because i fit some vaguely some their idea of what an asian girl should be right
1: and that and that's perfectly within your your rights, and it's and perfectly within a standard that you are willing to hold other people to, you know, and I think it's not your burden to explain to someone why they're racist. It's not your burden to explain to someone why, you know, they feel as though they're being attacked, or... <laughs> And it's definitely, definitely not your burden to try to do all of this guesswork and heavy lifting when all it really takes is, like you said, just, you know, listening.
0: Right, right. Like, how hard could it be to ask a question, right? Especially if you are already asking me questions, why not actually ask questions that will draw out answers that will tell you about who I am as an individual person?
1: Right. And then in that way you're kind of walking together along a path of understanding versus, you know, you're both sides are kind of assuming one thing or another, you know. If you had just if you just ask a question, there's there's not that this invisible weight that you're kind of carrying around the whole rest of the conversation. Right, right. And
0: there's also the aspect where I almost feel like, wait, do I have to, should I, is he expecting me to thank him for right. trying to relate
1: in the most ignorant way possible? Exactly. That, that is such a frequent occurrence, you know, and yet it doesn't seem to get easier with every, with every you know new experience, you know, it's, it seems to be just equally puzzling yeah because because you know we we give somebody else the benefit of the doubt we give them the benefit of the doubt that you know maybe they're gonna ask yet every single experience maybe they're gonna ask or maybe this one's gonna be different yeah We, we always
0: hope that it will be different right and and in there lies the stress point that I think a lot of people don't understand. When we talk about microaggression, right. like in some ways, is that exactly that is, it's also the stress that's involved from all the training of
1: being disappointed over and over. Exactly. And, and it, you know, that, you know, that goes into your, your, it's comfortable, let's not change it. Kind of where you're not only, you know, speaking from the perspective of that majority culture, but there's a part of you that's like, yeah, if I let myself skydive, if I let myself be free fall like that, you know, Mm -hmm. I will probably, you know, get splattered (laughs) without anybody noticing that there's a splatter.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of discomfort involved in confrontation. There's a lot of discomfort involved in setting the record straight to making people understand you because you have to, especially in a case like this, where you feel like, oh, they think they're making an effort, whereas they're acting out of pure ignorance, and they could have done something very simple to have addressed that, to have render you fully a person
1: rather right. than
0: just a stereotype. But they're not. At the same time, we are, especially as women, but women of color as well, in this, this dynamic, racial dynamic, in that, you know, it's nice to be flattered. It's nice to be appreciated, even if you're not. And I think for a lot of people, sometimes we stop asking to be appreciated who, for who we are, and rather right. just be appreciated for who they think we are.
1: Exactly. It's really such a heavy. It's a heavy thing when you listen to it to that to that degree. Like I've had, you know, kind of what I was uh, explaining earlier as a young artists of color in a predominantly white diy community um people will literally just look over you Mm. because it's easier that way Mm. and it's easier for them to say no i am i support diversity or no like i like I'm, i'm cultured i like all these things like like, I'm Buddhist, you know, like, like things like that. Uh, I do it's yoga. Easier. <laughs> it's easier for that, you know? It's easier to be like, yeah, man, like, you know, there's, I, I feel you, man. We're on, we're on the same wavelength, you know? Like, it's so much easier to do that instead of, like, looking around you, you know, and, <laughs> and questioning to yourself, why am I only supporting the people that look like me? Right. You know, Am I only talking about support and lending hands and, you know, writing about it, posting about it, whatever, you know, like going to the shows, buying, you know, the product. Why am I only doing that to a very, very small, tiny, you know, little group of people? Yet, anytime coming in contact with someone other than that, I claim to be this kind of person who supports everyone when time and time again, you know, it's proven that you don't. Right. Right. Like, you know, going back to the,
0: who, who do you have as your friends who's in exactly. your friend circle? You know, are, the, are are people self-congratulatory when they have more than one minority friend or when I right. have one minority friend, they're like, oh, my God, look at this. I'm, I'm so right. accepting. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, right. uh, it, yeah, it's, it's especially frustrating when, you know, we are living on somebody else's land. All of us are living on somebody else's land. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like, all right. And, and yeah, I, I literally have. I imagine you might have had this, uh, these sort of exchanges as well, where people are tracing, just like suddenly become amateur genealogists, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it, and, it's,
1: and it's honestly not even such, you know, on the micro scale anymore. Are there's political figures, yeah. you know, I'm not gonna name any names, Elizabeth Warren, who literally use this platform you know to kind of advance a very narrow kind of perception of whose land is this do I deserve this over someone else yeah instead of listening to those communities you know that's like going back to what you were saying like the only way to even go about Trying to create a more equal society or culture is to listen, and if you're not even doing that part because you think you know everything already, <laughs> how are we going to get anywhere? And then how are we going to be able to let ourselves fall? Yeah, and trust that we will land.
0: Yeah, and you know, going back to you're talking about the politicians as well, just. Having dropping the soundbite of black and brown communities, black and brown communities, as if you know that in itself is enough, and uh, unfortunately, it's so there's so little of it that sometimes it does pick up votes, right? When it's such a
1: such a pathetic effort, you know? Right. I mean, all you did was say some words. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: It becomes like. Similar to dog whistles, but, you know,
1: in in a more positive sense. Right, right. Yeah, and it's hard. Once again, I think we also have that experience of, like, I mean, it's hard dealing with it because we don't want to knock it. You know, we don't want to knock any semblance of progress because we're just always taught from the beginning, at least there was that progress, you what? know? But why can't we demand you know something more.
0: I think it's high time that we do because come on, it's, it's not like uh, I mean we. Uh, honestly, you're from India, one of the the oldest like cultures in the world. Okay, I mean it's not like you didn't exist when they became whatever. Yeah. So it's 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 frustrating. I mean, India has been the uh, a partner, a trading partner of the Western world forever. So yeah. it, it's frustrating to still be like, oh, how novel, you have dark skin. I'm like, for God's sakes, I mean, like how much science do we know? I mean, on the one hand, we have little computer in our hands. On the other hand, we're still bothered by somebody's skin color?
1: It's, exactly. It's like, it's, especially tracing the roots, like you're saying. like I mean, you, you yourself have been in contact throughout history like you yourself have you know stolen and and colonized and claimed and then now you kind of act like one it didn't happen and and two that we have to pay the price still for it <laughs> even though one or two people maybe in the community has admitted that it's wrong three historians maybe said that this was this should not have happened but then yet I go to school I go to class and in my world uh world religion class you know they ask me what I know about Hinduism you know and I'm like I get it like I'm the only brown girl in this class but I I don't believe in God like why are you making these kinds of assumptions (laughs) to this day yeah
0: yeah, you look the part. You must know. I mean, it's it's sort of like I I always want to say I wish, I wish ethnic knowledge or cultural knowledge, and that's associated with my race was automatic because I would love to know all of the history. There's so much right. of
1: it, but
0: right, and that
1: is specifically a very American problem. You know, it's. <laughs> it's such an American problem of not like knowing anything beyond your tiny bubble of what you know, yet even given the resources, all the resources in the world, the internet, like just the, the ability to to travel from, you know, you're like home, you know, like you're given all of the resources that you need to have a better understanding of someone else. Um, yeah. Put in this country, like for whatever reason, people don't even sometimes step outside of their their hometown, and they don't read. They don't, you know, they don't engage with other cultures. Like when I go home to India, for example, they ask me millions of questions about American politics, American culture, American music, American. You know, like they're aware of what's going on over here. Right.
0: I feel like curiosity comes at a premium. Honestly, uh, I've been in situations where people have the opportunity to ask questions, to fill in the gaps of knowledge, but they don't. People don't. I mean that for every kind of people that I've encountered. And, And in terms of, you know, like other cultures knowing about America, because we're such a, you know, as a country, we're such a center of gravity in some senses. Right, um, You know, because of the infrastructure we've built over the last 50, 50 to, uh, you know, 80 years, 100 years even, that people feel like they have to know. But anyway, it, it's just, it is very frustrating when you see this cultural hegemony when you're outside of the states. And then even within the states, you see this, um, the dominant cultural hegemony. Uh, both in the representation in media, as well as just in your everyday life. Right. Uh, You know, it's, it is very frustrating and it can be very disheartening and very exhausting uh, to live with. Very exhausting, yeah. Yeah. So in closing, where do you read now in the new normal, let's say, and then how do people follow you?
1: As you know, I've been living in a van in an attempt to do a Poetry album, poetry book tour across America. So, you know, if anyone has any connections or anything, I can literally physically be there. I I can electronically be there. I usually read in my home community of Nashville, but I've been doing, you know, several readings and Mm. on Zoom and, you know, just physically, hopefully one day soon that I could be in your city soon. As for following me, um, all my socials are at Lagnajita14, L-A-G-N-A-J-I-T-A-14. You can find a link to my band camp for my poetry album. If you reach out to me, I have my second book. It's called Everything Is Always Leaving. And I'm on Facebook mm. under Lagnajita M. Yeah, please reach out to me if anyone has any questions. Great. So you're on Facebook. You, I know you're on
0: Instagram. <laughs> Are you on Twitter as well? I am. Okay. The same tag. Okay, Landed 14. And yeah. uh, Bandcamp, uh, anything else
1: besides those? I have a website, but you, you can pretty much find all of those things on Facebook. What's the website? It's com.
0: Okay, so same as the Facebook. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, cool, cool. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate you sharing your experience with us.
1: Thank
0: you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Muses. Aside from our website and SoundCloud, you can also listen to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, as well as TuneIn. You could also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.